Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, the U.S. Senate finally agrees to debate the support given for Saudi Arabia's genocidal attack on Yemen. But CNN fires a contributor for his speech about attacks by Israel on Palestinians. We'll hear that entire address at the United Nations by Professor Mark Lamont Hill. We cannot endorse a narrow politics of respectability that shames Palestinians for resisting, for refusing to do nothing in the face of state violence and ethnic cleansing. And as the UN Climate Conference is set to start in Poland, environmental justice activist Jose Bravo joins a grassroots delegation from the U.S. Probably 10 years ago, a just transition away from fossil fuels would have cost us about $189 billion. And just to set that in context, we've spent trillions of dollars on war. We could have just transitioned the United States into uh, a safer energy system many, many times over. All that, Mo Russiagate, and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And this final week of November 2018 began with the U.S. government illegally spraying tear gas across the border into Mexico and dousing women and children. And the week is ending after rallies marking the one-year anniversary of massive election fraud in Honduras, the home of many of those seeking asylum at the U.S. border. And it ends with seven men being convicted on Thursday of the 2016 murder of renowned Honduran environmental activist Berta Cáceres. For people all over the world, her murder will always be emblematic of what a human rights catastrophe exists in Honduras and other Central and South American countries after a century of U.S.-backed coups and interventions. But there is resistance abroad and at home, and there is news. After 15 years of the so-called War on Terror, the U.S. Senate voted Wednesday to advance a war powers resolution that could end U.S. funding of Saudi Arabia's war on Yemen, which has led to the deaths of more than 100,000 people and is still starving millions. This week, the U.N. reported that 85,000 children in Yemen under the age of five have starved to death in the past three years. While anti-war activists celebrated the vote, Senator Bernie Sanders, sponsor of the resolution, reminded supporters that there is still a long road ahead with debate and a final vote on the measure expected as early as next week. What we are saying is that the United States of America in our resolution has got to get out of that war. And instead of being part of the killing uh, in Yemen, we have got to do everything we can to bring peace to that country uh, and humanitarian aid so that we stop this horrific humanitarian disaster. Uh, But let me caution everybody, uh, given the extremely obscure and complicated rules of the United States Senate, uh, this fight is far from over. Uh, What we won this afternoon was a vote to discharge our resolution out of the Foreign Relations Committee. And that was a major, major victory. Uh, But what we have got to do uh, is continue our effort uh, to make sure uh, that we end up winning the resolution to proceed, to go forward. And then finally, we have got to win uh, final passage. The resolution is sponsored by Sanders, Independent of Vermont, Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, and Senator Mike Lee, 
Republican of Utah. The three lawmakers have reminded colleagues that it is Congress and not the president that has the right to use American treasure or troops to make war on another country. And speaking of American treasure, an exclusive story in The Nation revealed this week how the Pentagon, which recently flunked its first ever independent audit, has been perpetrating accounting fraud. Dave Lindorf wrote that, quote, DOD has literally been making up numbers in its annual financial reports to Congress, representing trillions of dollars worth of seemingly non-existent transactions, end quote. The Pentagon receives 54 cents out of every dollar in federal appropriations, according to the report. In climate news, on Tuesday, the D.C. Council gave preliminary approval to the Clean Energy D.C. Act, a landmark climate policy which will strengthen the district's renewable electricity requirement to 100 percent by 2032, putting D.C. on the fastest timeline to 100 percent clean energy in the country. The D.C. Climate Coalition, made up of more than 110 organizations, celebrated the vote, despite the fact that the preliminary version of the bill includes last-minute amendments introduced by Councilmember Kenyon McDuffie, which will give PEPCO, the district's Exelon-owned electrical company, authority over how efficiency investments are made, including the authority to compensate itself for any loss of profits for consumers using less of its dirty energy. During the meeting, author of the legislation, Councilmember Mary Che and Councilmember Charles Allen both commented on the importance of the act and possible dangers of the Exelon amendments. At the markup of the bill uh, by the Committee on Business and Economic Development, a provision was added requiring the PSC to approve applications by PEPCO Exelon to run energy efficiency programs, which I had not seen prior to a few days before. At the time, the provision had not yet been vetted by other parties, including the PSC, OPC, or DOEE. Now, over the past week, I've received comments from those agencies, as well as various other interested parties who are greatly concerned about the perhaps unintended consequences of this amendment on ratepayers and our existing energy efficiency programs that are run by DOEE and the Sustainable Energy Utility. I understand that Councilmember McDuffie will be offering some amendments to the bill today, although I uh, only just received them. Uh, they may partially address some of these concerns about the provision. However, I'm continuously getting feedback as recently as last night from agencies and others with suggestions of how this provision might be changed to protect our ratepayers and to keep PEPCO from monopolizing the energy efficiency market to the detriment of existing programs and private companies. I remain concerned about the provision, of course, uh, but as we are still trying to understand its implications, I'm not prepared today to offer an amendment that will address the concerns, but I intend to work on this, uh, hopefully along with Councilmember McDuffie, over the next weeks before the bill's second reading. I certainly support the additional energy efficiency programs, but uh, I do want us to be thinking carefully when low and moderate income district residents and not a massive corporation bear the financial risk of PEPCO's investments. I was listening to a story earlier today, actually, um, talking about this conflict around climate change and and the urgent actions that are needed. And for some people, thinking about the end of the month is more important than thinking about the end of the world. Struggling with debt, housing costs, childcare, and more, to some, the urgency of the cost to live day to day take on a higher priority than the actions that may be needed for the next several decades and century. But our policies must take the urgency needed to address both of these things. Coalition members who have been working on the legislation 
say they will continue to work on it in the coming weeks to eliminate any additions that will interfere with the clean energy targets and that could require D.C. residents to pay higher utility bills. In other D.C. news, healthcare workers held a rally and press conference Thursday to call for transparency, equity in healthcare services, and economic justice. The district is set to vote on a potential deal with George Washington University Hospital to operate a 150-bed facility on the site of the former St. Elizabeth's campus in southeast D.C. But rally organizers, including the union 1199 SEIU, Healthcare Workers East, said that the deal would eliminate employee collective bargaining in the new facility and circumvent the legal process, where public hearings are required and details of any agreement must be made public. In addition, it is not known what specialty health services George Washington will provide in Southeast D.C. because it is also being allowed as part of the deal to add 270 beds at its current location in Foggy Bottom, Northwest D.C. The Reverend Graylin Hagler was one of the speakers at Thursday's rally. And we're here today to say, shine the light in the darkness. We want to know what went on. We want to know who's doing what. And we want to make sure that our voices are heard because our voices have not been heard to date when we stand up for health care in this city. The proposed deal is contained in the East End Health Equity Act of 2018, which is scheduled to be voted on by the D.C. Council on Tuesday, December 4th. And finally, in culture and media, December 10th is the deadline for the House of Representatives to reverse the FCC's deeply unpopular repeal of net neutrality, which allows equal access to all websites and online properties. A broad coalition of websites, celebrity activists, and advocacy groups representing millions of Americans participated in an Internet-wide Day of Action on Thursday, November 29th, to pressure members of Congress to back the legislative effort to restore net neutrality protections. The campaign to reverse the repeal of net neutrality is continuing until December 10th, and the website for more information is deadlineforNetNeutrality.com. On December 1st and December 2nd, Black Artists of D.C. is selling original 5 by 7 art in a fundraiser exhibit titled Imagine, noon to 5 p.m. at the Gibson Hunter Studio, 4221 Argyle Terrace in Northwest D.C. More information is at blackartistsofdc.org. Also on December 1st, Cold Pink is holding a Peace with Iran Summit at the First Congregational United Church of Christ, 945 G Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., followed by an evening to celebrate Iranian culture at the 14th and V Busboys and Poets in Northwest D.C. beginning at 6 p.m. More information about that is at codepink.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, just when you thought Russiagate had died a natural death, it comes back with a vengeance. Gerald Horn is next. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and joining me on the line is Professor Gerald Horn, On the Ground's geopolitical analyst. And Gerald, I want to first ask you about what are mixed results in D.C. this week. 
On the one hand, we have the Senate finally approving to debate U.S. involvement and funding Saudi Arabia's attack on Yemen. On the other hand, it's still Russia, 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 24-7, starting with the encouragement of this potentially dangerous rift between Ukraine and Russia in the narrow straits of the Azov Sea, where corporate media is portraying it as Russian aggression when Russia is basically saying that this is all staged and that they have a right to protect what are violations of the rules of the waterways there. Well, even some in the corporate media pointed out that the leader of Ukraine, Petroshenko, was able to use this crisis to impose martial law, which he found necessary to do since he is lagging terribly in the polls for the next election, which will take place in a few months. I should also say that it's complicated as well, relations between the United States and Moscow. That is to say, it's unclear if the U.S. president will meet with Vladimir Putin at the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires. And in any case, as we've talked about on this program more than once, the United States has escalated armed shipments uh, to Ukraine. At the same time, you have these neo-fascist forces who are gaining ever more influence in Kiev. So it's a very combustible situation and let us hope that cooler heads prevail. Now, with regard to the first point that you mentioned, it's true that the vote in the Senate was only to debate U.S. aid to the Saudi genocidal policy in Yemen. But I think that there is a ray of sunshine insofar as you had conservative Republicans like Senator Mike Lee of Utah who were full-throated in their critique of Saudi policy, uh, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who, as you know, has been a sycophant with regard to Mr. Trump of late, has also been rather sharp in his castigation of Saudi Arabia. So hopefully something positive can come out of this debate when it takes place. Well, speaking of all things Russia, you did mention the G20 and the whole discussion or debate or hysteria over whether Trump and Putin will actually meet. That's just, it seems so ridiculous to me. But the other story that's been kind of brewing here is the fact that you have this on Thursday, President Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleading guilty to some charges related to the so-called Russiagate investigation. And also a highly disputed story from The Guardian about Paul Manafort, who ran Trump's campaign for a while, um, meeting with Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, somehow kind of connecting these the threads, the bare threads of the story they've been trying to connect uh, to create this narrative about Russiagate. It seems like we're nearing the end of this Mueller investigation, and still we don't have any proof of collusion. Well, with regard to the Guardian story, it was sourced rather thinly, shall we say. In fact, the former leading British diplomat, Craig Murray, was on record as denouncing it as being fraudulent. I think that part of the story concerning the tightening of the noose around Mr. Trump does not necessarily rest with this uh, plea by his former fixer, Michael Cohen. I think more attention should be paid to the fact that in Germany, there was a raid on the office of Deutsche Bank. And as we all know, Deutsche Bank of Germany has been a major source of funding to Mr. Trump. 
even when no other banks would lend to him. Not only that, but the incoming chairperson of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters of Los Angeles, has made clear that she is also going to pursue this Deutsche Bank connection. And therein might rest the story of the real scandal concerning Trump and the Trump organization. Well, much of what has been in the news about the summit, about the G20 summit, has been this discussion about whether Trump will actually meet with Putin. I think that he has recently said that he will not. But that has been all the speculation. And, of course, these queries are kind of attacking Trump from the right And a lot of these attacks are coming from Democrats. And that also brings me to another point that I want to discuss with you. And that is the defeat of Representative Barbara Lee of California. And she was defeated in her bid to be caucus chair by Hakeem Jeffries, a corporate Democrat from New York. And this kind of attack from the right on progressives uh, is kind of falling into a regular pattern now uh, since the midterm elections. As you well know, I would argue that challenges from the right have been the signal factor in the history of the United States ever since 1776, when I have argued at some length that the United States, what became the United States, rebelled against London because London appeared to be moving towards abolition and London seemed to be uh, unwilling to further attack Native Americans to get their land and turn it over to land speculators like George Washington. You are correct with regard to Hakeem Jeffries. He's a favorite of the New York Times. He's a former corporate lawyer. He's a former lawyer for CBS, amongst other members of the uh, Fortune 500. And what's interesting about his election is that he, like many others in the House, put forward this idea of youthful energy to replace older leaders. He's 48, Barbara Lee is 72. Now, they're not talking about politics. That is to say, Barbara Lee is to the left of Hakeem Jeffries. And so it seems to me we should be more interested in Barbara Lee being an anti-war stalwart, uh, being to the left uh, more so than Hakeem Jeffries, and certainly more so than him being uh, a sort of toady for corporate interests. Hmm. We didn't just talk about the the impact of tariffs, which we have discussed quite a bit, whether that had any role, as some economists say, in this announcement of plant closings and layoffs by GM. And I think you also mentioned uh, a closure by BMW in South Carolina. Well, BMW has one of its major plants internationally in Spartsburg, South Carolina, and it uses that plant to export high-level BMWs, particularly to China. But in light of the trade war and the tariff war, uh, China has now put tariffs on those BMWs from South Carolina, and so therefore BMW has decided to move more of its production into China, which is going to lead to layoffs in South Carolina. Now, what's curious about many of Mr. Trump's policies is that they seem to be harming those who voted for him, such as South Carolina, uh, such as Ohio, uh, such as the soybean farmers in the industrial Midwest and the agricultural Midwest. And it's unclear to me what will be the impact. I think it's too simple to say that these constituencies will revolt against him. 
you could just as easily say that they'll fall again for his con game and argue that the reason they're doing badly is because of obstruction on the part of his political opponents. Okay, well, we'll see. And uh, we'll definitely keep discussing these issues. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Michelle Roberts, and I'm on the ground with Jose Bravo, Executive Director of the Just Transition Alliance. Jose, I want to talk to you about this upcoming climate negotiations held in Poland. It's my understanding that you will be traveling with the a delegation of the Indigenous Environmental Network and the Grassroots Global Justice. Tell us about that upcoming conference. Yes, um, thank you, Michelle, for this interview. And we're going into Poland. We're going to the town of Katowice, Poland, in an area that has um, uh, been historically coal mining. Uh, area and our goal for this meeting is to intervene within the conference of the parties and have a broader discussion with um, civil society and official mem- official members of the COP around um, REDS projects, which is uh, carbon offsetting projects that the UN um, is imposing in different parts of the world. And at the same time, we want to talk about just transition. Uh, we know that um, folks in that country uh, for, for generations have depended on coal. And it's going to be an interesting meeting in, in Katowice, Poland, for sure. Wow. So this kind of sounds like our Appalachian region here in the United States. Yep. Yes, it sounds very much like our Appalachian region, and there's folks from Appalachia also going on the delegation, and um, they're, they've been working on just transition in Appalachia, so it should be an, an interesting meeting. And, you know, one of the things that we've been having conference calls with folks about this meeting and with European folks and folks from throughout the world and what we've been saying is that, you know, after um, this administration came on, they came off of the agreement. They didn't sign on. And we've been telling other countries that, you know, the 900-pound bully is out of the room. So this is time for other countries to start making some strides to really minimize carbon in the atmosphere. 
Jose, tell us about Just Transition. We hear a lot of people speaking on Just Transition. What is that? Well, Just Transition could can be when there is something that's hazardous or or contaminating and how to transition justly from that contamination to something that um, is beneficial all around at all levels of production, from the workplace to wherever it's consumed. So to give you an example, if we want to transition away from fossil fuels, what would be the alternative? Many people are talking about renewable energy as the transition, and what we're saying within the Just Transition Alliance is that we agree that renewable energy should be the goal, but there's also um, things that we need to talk about and think about as we transition into renewable energy, such as um, production of uh, those sources of renewable energy locally, regionally, um, instead of globally, and also the, the, the whatever mechanisms are put in place have to be manufactured in a way that it doesn't pose, again, any danger to workers or the community or the environment. And a just transition, to give you an example, um, years ago, probably 10, 10 years ago, a just transition away from fossil fuels uh, would have cost us about $189 billion dollars and just to set that in context, we've spent trillions of dollars on war. We could have just transitioned the United States into uh, a safer energy system many, many times over. Wow, that's very interesting. So with a just transition economy, where, what role does the average person play in that in that? Uh, decision-making process. So ultimately, the you can't have a just transition if you don't include folks on the ground, folks that are going to be impacted or are being impacted, and workers. So those just transitions need to be planned and very much detailed by those that are in harm's way and those that are wanting to transition away from a dirty process. Um, if you come to the table as a community and want to work a just transition, but you don't have the workers at the table, um, then that's, you know, we, we believe that that wouldn't get you to a just transition. A just transition looks at things from cradle to cradle, and at all levels of that spectrum, um, it has to not have any kind of exploitation, either to the planet, to the workers, to where things are manufactured and where things are brought back into the cradle-to-cradle approach. If there is exploitation of either the environment or people, then we don't consider that a just transition. That's a very interesting way about going about that. So, Jose, if, if a community here in the United States was interested in seeking to uh, try and transform their local governments to practicing in what we're hearing a no-harm way um, and they need help in doing so, uh, how can those communities begin that process? Well, again, I think it's part of trying to 
work at it locally. So before we can transition a system in, in general, a, a whole um, what we call you know system-wide transition, there has to be local transition. So um, folks need to look at whether they want to have a just transition in the way that they get food or in the way that they, they, the food comes to them or in the way that food is produced for them. So those are very local things that folks can start taking on. And at the same time, if you want to transition out of, you know, from away from pollution from a plant that's at your fence line, then ultimately it's bringing the workers together, coming together, and and um, and working on what would be a viable um, transition, right? And for us, I think we we can we in the past have been advising folks. But, you know, it, it really has to come from those people living in those communities, from those workers working in those plants, or from workers and communities recognizing that somewhere somewhere, somewhere down the line the system is failing them. Great. So how can we support you here in the United States, your delegation, while you all go to Poland, and you'll be in Poland when? So... I personally will be in Poland from the from the 5th through the 13th of December and our delegation some of our delegation is going in probably um right after the 1st of December and staying till the 14th. So um there's going to be a lot of uh, ongoing dialogues, ongoing actions. <clears throat> you know, they the the conference of the party chose Poland uh, this year, and in Poland there is a law against direct action. There is a law around civil disobedience that um, that they have. So a lot of the strategy is going to be internal um, to try to convince and and actually have countries speak up uh, for indigenous rights and other rights, but. You know, from what we're hearing, too, is that there's a lot of workers that are going as union members to the COP, and I think it's about pulling together and then possibly trying to impact the, the actual agreement with, uh, with the righteous uh, just transition. Um, in France, a couple years back, um, the just transition language did make the preamble of the agreement, but, you know, you had countries talking about just transition in a way that for me and for us, I think, would be detrimental because folks were talking about a just transition could be from, um, you know, fossil-based fuels to nuclear energy. And for us, that is in no way, shape, or form a just transition because it really puts a lot of uh, people in danger and you know, the waste is usually targeted for indigenous communities here in the United States. So um, that's not a just transition. So what we're going to be doing in Poland is coming together and hopefully pushing on the state members, uh, on the different countries, to do the right thing and to really, really stretch their imagination and their wherewithal to keep us under one degree Celsius uh, or to the one degree Celsius, which we believe will save the planet. Thank you.
on I'm on the ground with Jose Bravo of the Just Transition Alliance. This is Michelle Roberts of the On the Ground Show. Thank you, Jose. Thank you, Michelle. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Thursday, November 29th, was the day of solidarity with the Palestinian people. And leading up to the day, CNN contributor Mark Lamont Hill gave a speech at the UN on Wednesday. Afterwards, CNN fired him. In the speech, Hill encouraged protests of Israel until there is a, quote, free Palestine from the river to the sea, end quote. The phrase from the river to the sea has been used by Gaza's elected leadership, Hamas, and was thought by some to be an attack on the Jewish people. Hill said in a tweet that those criticisms were a misinterpretation of the phrase. He wrote, quote, my reference to river to the sea was not a call to destroy anything or anyone. It was a call for justice, both in Israel and in the West Bank slash Gaza. The speech very clearly and specifically said those things. No amount of debate will change what I actually said or what I meant. Here is Mark Lamont Hill speaking at the United Nations. Mr. Secretary General, Chairman, Ambassadors, and Your Excellencies, good afternoon. It is with great honor and humility that I accept the opportunity to speak before you. As a scholar, as an activist, and as a citizen, I am profoundly interested in the plight of the Palestinian people, as well as the broader ethical, moral, and political implications of their struggle for freedom and justice, as well as equality. As such, this annual convening represents a critical intervention. It also represents a site of possibility. On the other hand, it shows considerable irony. As you well know, this year marks the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This declaration is produced out of the rubble and contradictions of World War II, and it was intended to offer a clear ethical and moral outline of the basic rights and freedoms to which all human beings, irrespective of race, religion, class, gender, or geography, are entitled. This declaration, of course, has been far from perfect, both in design and in execution. Too often we have framed human rights through the lens of the West. We viewed it through the gaze of colonialism, and we have assessed them through the limited prism of our own experiences. Simply put, the powerful have too often attempted to universalize 
their own particular and local values. Still, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has offered us a flawed but functional starting point from which to articulate basic moral and ethical ambitions as global citizens. These ambitions have been particularly helpful when attempting to keep track of the vulnerable against the backdrop of imperialism, exploitative economic arrangements, white supremacy, patriarchy, and all the other entanglements of the modern nation state. For this reason, it is indeed ironic and sad that this year also marks the 70th anniversary of the Nekbe, the great catastrophe in May 1948 that resulted in the expulsion, murder, and to date, permanent dislocation of more than a million Palestinians. For every minute that the global community has articulated a clear and lucid framework for human rights, the Palestinian people have been deprived of the most fundamental of them. While the Universal Declaration for Human Rights says that all people are, quote, born free and equal in dignity and rights, the Israeli nation state continues to restrict freedom and undermine equality for Palestinian citizens of Israel, as well as those in the West Bank and Gaza. At the current moment, there are more than 60 Israeli laws that deny Palestinians access to full citizenship rights, simply because they're not Jewish. From housing to education to family reunification, it is clear that any freedoms naturally endowed to all human beings are actively being stripped away from Palestinians through Israeli statecraft. While human rights promises the right to life, liberty, and security of person, Palestinians continue to live under the threat of random violence by Israeli military and police. Disproportionate violence within the West Bank and Gaza unprompted violence in the face of peaceful protest and misdirected violence by an Israeli state that systematically fails to distinguish between civilians and combatants. While the Universal Declaration for Human Rights protects us against torture and cruel and inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, Palestinians continue to be physically and psychologically tortured by the Israeli criminal justice system, a term I can only use with irony. As human rights groups around the world have noted, the use of solitary confinement constitutes a clear and indisputable form of torture. Yet in the West Bank, Palestinians are routinely subjected to solitary confinement and indefinite detention, often without any formal charges being filed. Last year, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that physical torture in, quote, exceptional cases, including ticking time bomb situations, constitute acceptable means by which to engage in torture. Although these exceptions are themselves a violation of the absolute human right not to be tortured, Israeli security operates in practice in such a way that nearly all Palestinian cases are viewed as exceptional. Nearly every Palestinian is understood to be a potential terrorist, thereby making them susceptible to ticking time bomb investigation tactics at all times. As such, Israel's practices are routinely in clear violation of the UN's Convention on Torture, which was signed by Israel in 1986 and ratified in 1991. While the Declaration of Human Rights insists that no one be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile, Palestinians are routinely denied due process of law. West Bank Palestinians are regularly placed under administrative detention, a framework that allows them to be incarcerated for up to six months and can be extended after a judicial review without being charged with a crime. 
The only thing needed for such outcomes is the ambiguous claim of a security threat, a, a claim used by the Israeli state at all times, at all costs, and for all reasons. Through this vagueness, Palestinians are routinely punished for their political views rather than any actual threat of violence. The Declaration of Human Rights insists that all humans are entitled to a, quote, fair and public hearing by an impartial tribunal. Israeli military courts, the exclusive adjudicator, largely for West Bank residents, and in some cases Palestinian citizens of Israel, they have a conviction rate of more than 99%. That suggests that Palestinians are either more guilty than any other group in human history, or that the Israeli government is unwilling or incapable of offering fair and impartial trials for Palestinians. Declaration of Human Rights promises the right to freedom of movement and residence within the borders of each state, as well as the right to leave any country, including his, sick, own, and to return to said country. It is impossible to travel throughout historic Palestine and not see the blatant restriction of movement between cities and the occupied Palestinian territories, as well as inside the state of Israel. Standing checkpoints, temporary or flying checkpoints, uh, annexation walls, and other security barriers prevent Palestinians from moving freely both within areas legally designated by the Israeli government and co-signed by the Palestinian Authority under the terms of Oslo. But also we see in Gaza the restriction of movement that is so severe that it literally defines life in the area. I promise you that I will not exhaust all of my time by enumerating every human rights violation perpetrated by the Israeli government. These are well known and have been well documented by every credible human rights organization in the world. Rather, I would like to speak to you about the urgency of the current moment. Forgive my thirst. I I literally just got off of a flight from Palestine to come to address you this morning, uh, and I was boycotting the Israeli water, so I was unable to uh, (laughs) quench my thirst. But thank you for your indulgence or for indulging me, rather. Uh, As we speak, the conditions on the ground for Palestinian people are worsening. In recent decades, the Israeli government has moved further and further to the right, normalizing settler colonialism and its accompanying logics of denial, destruction, displacement, and death. Despite international condemnation, settlement expansion has continued. At the same time, home demolitions and state-enforced displacement continues to uproot Palestinian communities. For Gazans, the 11-year Israeli and Egyptian blockade by land, air, and sea has created the largest open-air prison in the world. With only 4% potable water, electricity access that is limited to four hours per day, 50% unemployment, and the looming threat of Israeli bombs, Gaza continues to constitute one of the most pressing humanitarian crises of the current moment. In the West Bank, conditions are not much better. Unemployment is generally around 18%, with frequent loss of income due to Israeli military closures, making it impossible for Palestinian workers to get access to jobs. Settlements and the extra land allocated for them, as well as closed military zones and other restrictions, make it impossible for Palestinian towns to grow. And in the midst of it all, Prime Minister Netanyahu's administration has become increasingly indifferent to critique, censure, or even scorn from the international community for its practices. 
Perhaps the most glaring example of this indifference, as well as the urgency of the current moment, is the recently passed nation-state law. Through this basic law, the Israeli state has officially rejected Arabic as an official state language. It has described settlement expansion both inside and outside of the Green Line as a national value, and it has reinforced the fact that Israel is not a state of all of its citizens. As an American, I am embarrassed that my tax dollars contribute to this reality. I am frustrated that no American president since the start of the occupation has taken a principled and actionable position in defense of Palestinian rights. And I am saddened, though not surprised, that President Trump's administration has further emboldened Israel's behavior through its recent actions. In May of this year, President Trump officially moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, which he recognized as the undivided capital of Israel. This choice not only flew in the face of international law and precedent, but also constituted a powerful provocation and a diplomatic death blow. In late August, President Trump then permanently reneged on America's commitment to funding UNRWA, a move that now leaves millions of Palestinian refugees in medical, economic, and educational peril. Moreover, the move serves as a political strong-arm tactic, whereby the United States is unilaterally attempting to resolve, through the Trump administration, the final status of Palestinian refugees. While President Trump's policies have been the most dramatic, it is important that I stress to you, to reiterate to you, that they are not wildly out of step with American policy. Cuts to UNRWA is an idea that has been raised in Washington for years, dating back at least to the George W. Bush administration. President Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem caused enormous controversy, but he was merely implementing a bipartisan law Congress passed in 1995. And in so doing, he executed what has already been official United States policy and the fulfillment of a promise made by every United States president and presidential candidate, Democrat and Republican, for a very long time. With regard to the question of Palestine, Donald Trump is not an exception to American policy. Rather, Donald Trump is a more transparent and aggressive iteration of it. As I mentioned at the beginning of my remarks, the words offered today by everyone in this room are a necessary component of our resistance efforts. We need powerful, counterintuitive, dangerous, and courageous words. But we must also offer more than just words. Words will not stop the village of Khan al-Ahmar with its makeshift schools created by local Bedouin villagers. Words will not stop them from being demolished in violation of the Fourth Geneva Conventions. Words will not stop poets like Darin Tetur from being caged in Israeli jails, for having the audacity to speak the truth about the conditions of struggle on her own personal Facebook page. Words will not stop peaceful protesters in Gaza from being killed as they fight for freedom against Israel's still undeclared borders. Regarding the question of Palestine, beyond words, we must ask the question, what does justice require?
To truly engage in acts of solidarity, we must make our words flesh. Our solidarity must be more than a noun. Our solidarity must become a verb. As a black American, my understanding of action and solidarity action is rooted in our own tradition of struggle. As black Americans resisted slavery, as well as Jim Crow laws that transformed us from a slave state to an apartheid state, we did, throw, we did so through multiple tactics and strategies. It is this array of tactics that I appeal to as I advocate for concrete action from all of us in this room. Solidarity from the international community demands that we embrace boycotts, divestment, and sanctions as a critical means by which to hold Israel accountable for its treatment of Palestinian people. This movement, which emerges out of the overwhelming majority of Palestinian civil society, offers a nonviolent means by which to demand a return to the pre-67 borders, full rights for Palestinian citizens, and the right of return as dictated by international law. Solidarity demands that we no longer allow politicians or political parties to remain silent on the question of Palestine. We can no longer, in particular, allow the political left to remain radical or even progressive on every issue from the environment to war to the economy, to remain progressive on every issue except for Palestine. Contrary to Western mythology, black resistance to American apartheid did not come purely through Gandhian nonviolence. Rather, slave revolts and self-defense and tactics otherwise divergent from Dr. King or Mahatma Gandhi were equally important to preserving safety and attaining freedom. We must allow, if we are to operate in true, in true solidarity with Palestinian people, we must allow the, the Palestinian people the same range of opportunity and political possibility. If we are standing in solidarity with Palestinian people, we must recognize the right of an occupied people to defend itself. We must prioritize peace, we must, but we must not romanticize or fetishize it. We must advocate and promote nonviolence at every opportunity, but we cannot endorse a narrow politics of respectability that shames Palestinians for resisting, for refusing to do nothing in the face of state violence and ethnic cleansing. At the current moment, there is little reason for optimism. Optimism of course, is the belief that good will inevitably prevail over evil, that justice will inevitably win out. In the course of human history, and certainly even in the course of the United Nations, there is no evidence of such a proposition. Optimism is unsophisticated. Optimism is immature. Optimism is what my students have when they take examinations that they did not study for. Some become quite religious at that time. But regardless of their strategies of optimism, the outcome is far from guaranteed or even likely. What I'm challenging us to do 
in the spirit of solidarity is not to embrace optimism, but to embrace radical hope. Radical hope is a belief that despite the odds, despite the considerable measures against justice and peace, despite the legacy of hatred and imperialism and white supremacy and patriarchy and homophobia, despite these systems of power that have normalized settler colonialism, despite these structures, we can still win, we can still prevail. One motivation for my hope in the liberation and ultimate self-determination of the Palestinian people comes in August of 2014. Black Americans were in Ferguson, Missouri, in the Midwest of the United States, protesting the death of a young man named Michael Brown, an unarmed African-American male who had been killed by a law enforcement agent. And as we protested, I saw two things that provided hope for the Palestinian struggle. One was that for the first time in my entire life of activism, I saw a sea of Palestinian people. I saw a sea of Palestinian flags in the crowd saying that we must form a solidarity project. We must struggle together in order to resist because state violence in the United States and state violence in Brazil and state violence in Syria and state violence in Egypt and state violence in South Africa and state violence in Palestine are all of the same sort. And we finally understood that we must work together and not turn on each other, but instead turn to each other. And later that night, when the police began to tear gas us, Meriam Barghouti tweeted us from Ramallah. She, along with other Palestinian youth activists, told us that the tear gas that we were experiencing was only temporary. They gave us tips for how to wash our eyes out. They told us how to make gas masks out of T-shirts. They gave us permission to think and dream beyond our local conditions by giving us a transnational or a global solidarity project. And from those tweets In social media messages, we began then to organize together. We brought a delegation of black activists to Palestine, and we saw the connections between the police in New York City who were being trained by Israeli soldiers and the the type of policing we were experiencing in New York City. We began to see relationships of resistance, and we began to build and struggle and organize together. That spirit of solidarity, a solidarity that is bound up not just in ideology, but in action is the way out. So as we stand here on the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the tragic commemoration of the Nekbe, we have an opportunity to not just offer solidarity in words, but to commit to political action, (coughs) grassroots action, local action, an international action that will give us what justice requires. And that is a free Palestine from the river to the sea. Thank you for your time. And Professor Mark Lamont Hill will have the last word on today's show. Speaking at the United Nations for Palestine Solidarity and for that, CNN fired him as a contributor. 
But on this show and on many shows throughout the Pacifica Radio Network, we will not turn our back on truth tellers and those resisting apartheid, genocide, and crimes against humanity. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. A special thanks to Gerald Horn and Michelle Roberts for their contributions to today's show. The music we played this hour included I Like That by Janelle Monet, What Rough Beast by Burnt Sugar, and El Kofia Arabia by Shadia Mansour. You can write us at our website. We'd love to hear from you. If you are a listener and you are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say On the Ground. On the Ground Show is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes under the title WPFW On the Ground. And we have a new Patreon page linked on our website. Please visit there and help us to continue to bring you news of real resistance in Washington, D.C. and around the globe. Thank you to those who have already answered the call. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.